working in the kitchen when I was a boy. My father was a potato farmer who was forced to sell my labor to the lord of the castle. Being ten years old, there wasn't much I could do, but being the son of a potato farmer meant that, despite my youth, I was easily the fastest peeler among the crew of cooks. So that's what I did for six long years. I enjoyed my position. It was far and away the easiest job in the bustling kitchen. I would watch as men and women twice or three times my age had to carry great haunches of meat from the storeroom to the roasting spit, pluck piles of dead birds, grind large crystals of salt into pinchable flakes, and occasionally be smacked by the head cook 
for burning the stock. Bakers kneaded loaves of bread, and old men spooned hot fat over suckling pig as they slowly turned the spit, all while I stood absent-mindedly peeling hundreds of potatoes. The tournament had begun the day before. There was music and dancing. Squires took turns jousting before the knights arrived, and the first feast was modest, as more lords and their levies would be trickling in. Today was much, much busier. The kitchen was alive with people moving back and forth, shouting to and over each other, preparing enough food to feed our host and all his guests. Thousands of people eating thousands of pounds of meat, vegetable, pies, breads, oh, and potatoes. Lots of potatoes. I was staring blankly at a brown spotted spud in my hand when I felt someone cuff the back of my head. It was the head cook. I rubbed the spot where the blow had landed and scowled. Boy, gonna bring Sir Gilead some wine for his nerves? They say the miserable shit won't even pick up his sword. The melee starts in thirty minutes, so best get that courage to him quick. I nodded, happy to escape the suffocating temperature in the kitchen, and took the wineskin from his outstretched hand. I slipped my lucky peeler into my belt pouch and headed off to find the knight. I knew my way around the castle well, yet if I didn't I simply could have followed the roar of the crowd to the arena that was built for the tournament. I found Sir Gilead looking green as an unripened tomato, sitting alone on the bench near the portcullis that led to the arena sands. Uh, some wine, Sir Knight. For courage? He didn't respond. He was a young man, maybe only a few years older than me, but tall and skinny. A lord's life of comfort had robbed his body of the muscles a man normally grows during his adolescence. When I reached out the sloshing wineskin, he suddenly smacked it away from me, where it landed with a thud in front of the portcullis. I looked at him tentatively, wondering if I could go, but he said nothing. After a few moments in silence, he muttered, Go on, boy. Pick it up. Obedient to the knight's request, I, I went to fetch the wineskin near the iron bars. My fingers had just grasped it when I heard a metal groan from the gate. The portcullis was lifting, and suddenly I had an open view of the arena. I turned to call out to Sir Gilead when I felt a hard shove behind me, which knocked me face-first into the sand. It took my eyes a moment to adjust to the brightness of the noonday sun. I got to my feet and looked behind me just in time to see the portcullis close with a thud. To my horror, I realized I was stuck in the arena, surrounded by armored knights with nothing but a wineskin. I backed myself against the wall and watched the melee begin. The sound of blunted swords smashing shields was deafening, and the crowd roared in approval. From above me I could hear people booing and cursing at me, calling me craven. Stop! Let me out! I cried to them, but their only response was a rock that nearly struck my head. I realized that even against the wall was unsafe if the crowd decided I was a coward. So, 
I took a gulp of the wineskin and moved forward closer to the center. I stopped near the middle when I saw one of the knights had noticed me. He had a huge flail in one hand and a shield in the other. And suddenly he came plodding towards me. I narrowly sidestepped a crushing blow into the sand and another that swung up towards the sky. Because I had no armor, I was easily faster than him, but would likely die from a single blow from his flail. A few more swings, and I dodged to the left, and then to the right. I could see his wild eyes peeking through the visor of his helm. Almost instinctively, I closed the distance and stuck the nozzle of the wineskin into his visor before squeezing the bag as hard as I could. He cursed as a thin stream of red blinded him. He dropped his shield and pulled off his helm. Just as he did so, another knight came upon him and smashed his exposed skull with the pommel of his sword. The man fell forward, unconscious. I could see the sword-wielding knight approaching me fast, and I frantically looked around for something I could defend myself with. I saw the shield the other man had dropped, and I scooped it up with both hands. It was heavy, but I managed to lift it in time to deflect a blow from the sword. I could feel my heart pounding as I charged the knight with my shield. We crashed together, and though his armor helped weather the blow, he tripped over the body of the unconscious pommeled knight. I pulled myself away from him as he tried to get up. I brought the bottom of the shield down on the brow of his helm once, twice, a third time before he stopped moving. Sweat was pouring down my face, stinging my eyes. I squinted as I looked around me. I noticed all the downed combatants being pulled out of the arena. I didn't see anyone left standing. Just then a sharp blow across my shoulder blades took the breath out of me, and I crashed hard into the sand. I rolled onto my back to see a giant knight standing above me with a great blunt axe in his hand. Struggling to breathe, I knew that my left shoulder was dislocated. I wasn't going to be able to lift the shield. I rolled away from a great downward swing and inhaled a lungful of dry earth. Something in my belt pouch was digging into my waist. My lucky peeler! I reached into my belt pouch and grasped the small knife. I stood up and turned to face my killer. I waited for him to strike, my knife a hidden stinger. He lunged at me with the axe over his head, and I saw his weakness. There in the pit of his arm was nothing but a thin layer of chain. I stood still until his charge became in range. Then I shot forward like an arrow and jammed the knife into his underarm and released it. He howled and dropped the axe behind his head and fell to one knee. I rolled behind him and grasped the axe, and using my whole body to rotate the heavy thing, struck his helm right along the side, crushing it into his temple. He crumpled to the sand like an empty set of armor. It was silent, except my ragged breathing. Then, all at once, the crowd erupted into cheers. Flowers began raining down around me, and small coins showered the sands. I smiled through the pain and raised my arm up in victory. I had won. 
A grand victory for a hero with nothing but a wineskin. Suddenly there was a howl that snapped me out of my daze. The old man had accidentally poured a ladle full of the hot fat onto his foot and was now hopping up and down and cursing. The head cook walked over to scold the man, and I looked down at the potato I was peeling. I had peeled it down to nothing but a small yellow lump with golden peels of potato all over the table. I smiled to myself and grasped another. I watched the head cook hand the old man a wineskin and told him to walk off his injury while bringing the skin to Sir Bedivin before the melee. The old man ambled towards me on his way out, muttering curses to himself. Before I knew it, I was stopping him as I slipped my lucky peeler into my belt pouch. Wait! I... I can take that to him, if you'd like. From the sands of the arena to the ancient sands of the pharaoh, we find our next tale taking us to the mystical city of Cairo, Egypt. It's hard to believe that at one time any number of charlatans could arrive in the city claiming to be archaeologists from lofty universities and thus gain access to innumerable riches hidden beneath the sands, locked away for centuries in sealed crypts. Indeed, it seems that our next set of protagonists have more in common with Indiana Jones than the bookish Oxford professor of anthropology they may be posing as. Perhaps a lack of academic understanding, or even skeptical reasoning, prevented them from believing in a little old curse from a little old jar. I think it's fair to say, however, that that ancient relic made one of them, in particular, a believer one piece at a time. It was 1890 in Cairo, Egypt, and there was never a better time to be a crook or an academic, not that anyone could tell the difference. A fellow with a passable British accent and a connection to a university or a museum could get anywhere he wanted to. Cleaning up at Oxford, I had nabbed some papers off of a certain professor's desk. Not long after that came the call for manual labor to assist in the university's exploration of ancient sites clustered around the Nile. A bit of lugging stuff around and setting up camp during the day, some scouring for antiques in the evening, and back to a cozy expat pub before sundown. Who could ask for a better deal than that? I wasn't the only one to have this epiphany, and I got talking with a guy early on in one of those pubs. He was a boisterous Brit of early middle age, portly and verbose. Nigel Kent, he called himself, though... Even at that time, I imagined the name to be assumed. Unlike myself, Nigel made no pretense of academia. 
Upon finding out that I had been gaining some rudimentary knowledge of hieroglyphs, he thought that we might make a profitable partnership. So we found ourselves exploring the dusty chambers of many an ancient burial site. A Brit could take anything they wanted back then. True, the universities and museums had better access to bigger sites and couldn't be crossed without the risk of being found out, but there really were enough relics for everybody to acquire a little piece of history. Nigel and I were thus engaged on the day he was maimed. A local, who we had been plying with British gin for a few days, finally let slip that some minor noble had his mastaba in a previously unexplored corner of the desert, far from prying eyes. It would not be the crypt of the pharaoh, but nothing we took would be missed. The tomb was unremarkable. There was some furniture and a few toys and lyres, as well as the usual mummified animals. Nigel joked about grabbing a crocodile, but we left everything where we found it. At that point, such things weren't worth the effort of carrying them, thanks to market saturation. We unsealed the portal with hammer and chisel and removed the slab. Within was a small square room, laid out with what once had been fine fabrics and pottery. At the far end, recessed into the wall, were two sarcophagi, one much smaller than the other. These were not the extravagant affairs found in the tombs of the pharaohs, which were decorated with exorbitant quantities of gold, but rather had a great deal of bronze with the faintest golden accents. Nigel began to shake the pottery, knowing that material wealth was buried with the dead and stored in such jars. He was disappointed, however, only one jar jingled with metal, and appeared to have only a small opening worked into the top. There were pictographs on the side showing the cobra, symbol of rulership and divine authority, as well as the Ankh and the Eye of Horus, which represented divine justice. What's it say, Danny? Well, it's hard to be sure. This first set looks like it might be the names over the entrance. So we're looking at their life savings, are we? Or is it their afterlife savings? <laughs> this definitely means curse, though, I said frantically, pointing at the glyphs about divine justice. Oh, wait. That's part of a bigger phrase. The jar takes payment when the owner utters blasphemy. Wait a minute, Nigel, this thing is an old kingdom curse jar. Curse jar? Better leave it then. The smirk on Nigel's face telegraphed his opinion of ancient curses. No, Nigel, a jar that you put money in when you swear. Sounds like a right load of horse shit to me. <laughs> How much is it worth? Probably not much. With all the ne'er-do-wells about flooding the market with antiquities, pottery just doesn't fetch what it used to. If it has a jingle when you shake it, that's probably where the profit is. You think? Shame to destroy something so old, but business is business. 
He casually tossed the ceramic jar into the air, letting it fall to the floor with a crash. Examining the contents, we were further disappointed. There were no coins, but only a few bronze rings and what looked like old finger bones and strips of preserved leather. What's this, then? He bent to examine the mess of mismatched bones on the ground. When he did so, he laid his palm down hard on a shard of pottery. Wanker! <laughs> Nigel let out an agonized scream. I saw blood gush out. He must have cut himself badly somehow, for his pinky finger was now shortened to the first knuckle. Steady, man. Get that patched and soothe the pain with a bit of whiskey when we get back to town. <laughs> whiskey? I've lost the tip of me, goddammed! Again he cried out, and again there was a spurt of blood. Quite definitely now, the pinky finger was again shorter by a knuckle. Though where the knuckle had gone, I could not say. Steady, just breathe. Don't say anything. I'll dress that as best I can. The cut was curiously clean. It could have been sliced by a guillotine. After I finished bandaging and he stopped screaming, I told him that we ought to call it a loss and maybe pay a visit to the local who had sent us here for good measure. As I glanced back into the darkened chamber, I saw that the pictographs on the shattered pottery seemed to be taking on an uncanny lumosity. We were leaving the tomb when Nigel banged his head on the stone-crafted exit, followed by a loud bollocks. Nigel's now familiar scream filled my ears. When I looked back, his little finger was gone entirely, along with the bandage in which I had wrapped it. With this, my colleague took great pains to say nothing while leaving the tomb, lest he utter some profanity to God knows what end. Thirty years later, I got an unexpected message. I was teaching archaeology outside my native Boston, having leveraged my time in Egypt into legitimate academic credibility. An old acquaintance was in Boston and looking to see how my life had shaped up. I didn't expect what I saw when Nigel joined me. He was now an old man, but looked cheerful enough for all that. He had slimmed down considerably over the years. Nigel wore black leather gloves with ridged fingers. Well, Denny, you've done awfully well for yourself, haven't you? Professor and all that. We always dreamed of life on Easy Street. He raised his coffee, clamping tightly with those stiff, gloved hands. Indeed, old friend. <clears throat> and, uh, what have the last thirty years brought you? Misery and circumstance, adventure and response. My desire for conquest has been sated, mostly. After we parted, I hung around North Africa for a bit, wondering if it might be a home to me by any means other than constant grifting. I found that it could not, and lost the rest of my left pinky to a crocodile for my trouble. Not bitten off, but the other thing. After that, 
It was selling Egyptian artifacts back on the continent until I ran out and had some close calls with fakes and lost the last joint of my right finger when I was caught in bed with a burger's wife in Bavaria. Middle segment of my left finger was coming back to the UK when customs officials made an unfortunate discovery in my case, which led to me spending a few months in the clink. He took a big slurp of coffee as though showing off his stiffed gloved hand for emphasis. The thumbs were the worst. I had something of a breakdown and stopped regarding the curse for a bit. When I came back to my senses, I cursed unthinkingly at the sight of the single nub of my remaining thumb. Of course, that was that. He placed a gloved hand on the table, leaning an elbow on the middle finger. He pulled, and the movement looked awkward despite the fact he must have performed it every day for some years. I recoiled at the sight of it, the fingerless hand ringed with scar tissue. Lucky for me, the Great War broke out! After that, plenty to do for an unscrupulous chap in need of coin. I made my way through the world doing what I had to, but always avoiding cursing. Why, though, if you already lost your fingers? Surely the curse is complete. I'm not certain. I wanted to test that, but thought it only right to wait until we could be together so that you could witness the end of this strange and gruesome adventure. What do you say, old chap? I was revolted, but found myself nodding. Well, here goes. I saw the scream rise in his eyes before I heard anything. A horrific, wet cry broke loose from his tightly closed lips. I shrugged, looking at his unchanged hands. Well, Nigel, what happened? He opened his mouth as though to speak, but only gurgled and spat a wretched gout of blood on the sidewalk. From that day, Nigel Kent never swore again. Our next segment brings the return of Alone on the Couch, the review segment of the show where, this week, I'll be talking about two new films on Netflix, Bird Box and Bandersnatch, as well as giving a special recommendation of something you may not have heard of. After all, there is no greater way to welcome the new year than with a little self-care, some ice cream, and a couple good movies to send shivers down your spine. Beware minor, incidental spoilers in the following segment. Hey, pulp listeners. Pulpits? Pulpies? Anyways, I, of course, am Cody Sullivan. I'm the creator of Pulp from Beyond the Veil, and I just want to share a couple of thought pennies with you regarding the two most recommended films I've been hearing about on Netflix. Some of you may be like, oh, geez, Cody, can't you do something a little less low-hanging than Netflix movie reviews? And to that, I say shut up. Netflix is ubiquitous. If you don't have an account, then odds are you're using somebody else's. Apart from that, though, in the past year or so, Netflix has done a great job in finding both hidden gems in the horror genre 
as well as producing acclaimed original movies and series. When it comes to horror, the success of both The Ritual and The Haunting of Hill House have demonstrated that Netflix is not to be overlooked just because it's popular. Which brings me to the first movie I want to talk about today. This is probably a movie you've heard about from a friend, or at least you may have seen the memes floating around on the internet. Bird Box is a Netflix original movie directed by Suzanne Beer based on a novel by the same name written by Josh Mallerman. Its diverse cast includes the likes of Sandra Bullock, John Malkovich, and Machine Gun Kelly of recent Eminem feud fame. Without getting into too much of the details, in case you want to watch the movie, uh, I'll try and best explain my reaction to Bird Box. To put it bluntly, I was underwhelmed. I'm not saying there were no good moments to the film or that the performances were off. Sure, John Malkovich is... Uh, it's hard to say his name. John Malkovich's character is literally a level 10 asshole the entire film, and that one note grows stale after the first few scenes with him. Sandra Bullock pulls off an engaged and nuanced performance as the protagonist Mallory, a stern single mother left alone with two children to survive a post-apocalyptic nightmare. It's hard enough getting kids to listen to you about normal everyday activities, let alone trying to convey the seriousness of a survival situation that depends on being silent and being blindfolded 90% of the time, or else something will make you kill yourself. Sorry, there's a small spoiler, uh, but deal with it. <clears throat> Which brings me back to being underwhelmed. This movie runs almost exactly two hours long, and... While I enjoyed the non-linear storytelling, rife with flashbacks that slowly reveal information about Mallory's past, it felt like this movie needed to be trimmed. It's sort of a cross between Cormac McCarthy's The Road and M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, with the tension of John Krasinski's A Quiet Place thrown in. So yeah, think about that. If long scenes of people quietly panicking while something is on the other side of a blacked-out window is your thing, you'll enjoy this movie. If you want to slowly unravel a story about a person's overcoming the inability to connect with others, then, then, yeah, then you'll enjoy this movie, because that's what, that's what this is about. If you're looking for something to scare you out of your wits or break new ground within the genre, you may not enjoy this film. I fall somewhere in between these camps, and while I'm certain it's worth a watch, for me it certainly doesn't hold much replay value. So if we're giving out figure skating style reviews, Bird Box is a 6.1 out of 10 for me. An outstanding effort by Netflix reaching 45 million viewers in a matter of days, but a bit dull and lacking serious scary substance. Okay. Moving on to the other movie that I've been hearing about, and I'm sure you probably have too. I want to talk about Black Mirror's new movie, Bandersnatch, produced by show creator Charlie Brooker. I use the term movie kind of loosely. Netflix themselves describes this as an interactive film. The best way to describe Bandersnatch is to compare it to the choose-your-own-adventure novels you may have read when you were a kid. If you weren't like me, reading every Goosebumps I could get my hands on, then you should know that this style of storytelling has the reader flipping to a different page number after reading the scenario on the page. 
the reader could be in a maze, and at the bottom of the page it would say, to go left, turn to page 70, to go right, turn to page 102, uh, ba 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 you get it. This is how Bandersnatch plays out. Okay, set in 1984 during the heyday of Atari and other 8-bit games, our hero Stefan, a programmer who, since his mother's untimely death, has been building a game based on a choose-your-own-adventure novel called Bandersnatch. He finds this book among his mother's things and grows obsessed with it, revering the author despite the fact that the author is best known for, you know, brutally murdering his wife. It is impossible to place a runtime on Bandersnatch because there are multiple endings and you can always go back and try something again. This leads to all kinds of strange scenarios for poor Stefan to manage and I gotta say, this is honestly one of the more refreshing bits of entertainment I've seen in a while. The story design is about as well done as it could be considering all the divergent variables that can happen. The performances I think are on point with different characters displaying a wide range of emotions for you, the viewer, to digest before you make a decision on what to do. Which you may be asking yourself, how does Bandersnatch include you in the story? Okay, in the middle of certain scenes, seemingly at random, your controller or your remote may vibrate and two choices will appear on what you can have Stefan do. Tread lightly, however, for it doesn't take long for him to realize he's being manipulated by outside forces, aka you. Which brings me to my biggest qualm, if you could call it that. This story is so meta that after sinking a couple hours into watching this film, one might start to wonder about their own nature of free will. I mean, sure, we're not stuck in the movie like Stefan, with somebody making arbitrary choices on what we do at any given moment, at least I think, but in a story whose themes lean heavily on the illusion of free will, I found myself frustrated at times at my limited selection of two options for any given scenario, especially when the two options are two versions of him doing the same thing. That, coupled with the fact that it isn't unreasonable to believe that Netflix is able to use its algorithms to collect data on your choices, observing what you choose and how quickly you choose it, it becomes a bit too on the nose given the subject matter. The experience of Bandersnatch can be summed up cynically as a story about a boy being watched and controlled by people who are more advanced than he can understand, and those people, in turn, are being watched by a system more advanced than them that they cannot understand. I think I'll take a migraine on this one. Still, Bandersnatch is an original, thought-provoking bit of entertainment with high replay value, and for that reason, I give it the modest score of 7.6. So there you have it. My two cents on two recent offerings from Netflix that seem to have everyone abuzz with excitement. I'll leave you with not a review, but a hot take on a movie that I hope to talk about in the future at further length. On Netflix, there is a killer clown movie called The Terrifier. It's a classic popcorn flick that mixes a heavy dose of horror and gore with just a tiny pinch of comedy. I strongly recommend it for those with a strong stomach. 
And although the latter half of the film drags its feet on the way out, the piece as a whole is strong enough to get a 7 hot take rating from me. That may change if I choose to review it further in the future. But for right now, 7. Very good score for a hot take. The Terrifier on Netflix. Check it out. Well, that about does it for this part of the show. I'm Cody Sullivan, and this has been my couch. Thanks for joining me. Until next time, I'll be waiting. Pulp from Beyond the Veil will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Chess, 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 non-Euclidean chess. Chess, 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 non-Euclidean chess. It's non-Euclidean chess. The only game guaranteed to keep you on your toes, hands, head, and knees the entire time. Chess the way it was never meant to be played. Chess, 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 non-Euclidean chess. Oh, God. God. Where'd my bishop go? Someone, please. You'll love the new spin on this classic game. Impress your friends with your knowledge of theoretical geometry. Check. Wait, wait, where? I can't tell what's happening. It's right there. I got you with my dodecahedron on G slash F4 slash 5. I think I have six. Why are all the lines going independently away from one another? Are the colors moving? Where's the king? You don't have a king, dum dum. This is non Euclidean chess, okay? You have a tesseract. <laughs> Help me. Learn how to move brand new pieces like the Tesseract, the Dodecahedron, and the Mobius Strip. Hey, I know it's your first time playing, but you're not doing very well. Also, don't look at that Mandelbrot set too long over there by H1 slash K8 or you will hurt yourself. It's telling me to do things! Chess, 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 non-Euclidean chess! Show off your mental fortitude against your friends! See, I feel like you're looking at it. I told you not to look at it. God, God, God this, this is just, just like just bird bars. bars. I knew we should have played 4D checkers. Chess, 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 non-Euclidean chess. So what are you waiting for? Visit our website, www.herecomesthechesters.com slash pulp for 10% off your first non-Euclidean chessboard. That's www.herecomesthechesters.com slash pulp. Beat your friends, shock your neighbors, destroy your enemies in the zaniest way possible. Non-Euclidean chess, better than all the chest. time today, and so thus ends this week's episode. Thank you for listening and supporting the channel. Today's segments included The Hero with a Wineskin, written by C.A. Sullivan, and Curse Jar, written by Gustav Grift. If you'd like to submit an entry to Pulp, please contact us at pulpfrombeyond at gmail.com. Submissions need to be original content of relevant theme, and please, 1,500 words or less. Pulp from Beyond the Veil is written, recorded, and produced by me, Cody Sullivan. A very special thank you to co-producer Zachary Husband for his outstanding commitment to this program, 
And lastly, I'd like to give a shout-out to contributor and friends of the show, Dominic Vonka and Carrie Cantera, who, as of December 31st, became parents to a little girl named Cambria Isabel. Congratulations and well wishes are in order. Thank you for listening. I'm Cody Sullivan, signing off.